Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. We're going to kick off a brand new topic. Now, there's a couple couple ways to do this at church, you know. We'll do a little introduction, then we'll pray together. But uh, if you've been with us, we've been doing these systematic studies over the years. Now, there's a lot of information God wants to get into your mind so it can do what it's supposed to do in your life so that you can be who God wants you to be, live the way God would have you live. And there's a diet, a staple of teaching that we give you on the weekends, which is uh, what we call exposition. We're trying to explain the text. Preaching is explaining it and applying it, trying to affect in your life the intention of what God uh, was planning when he gave that text. We threw all those principles out. We put them out there. We go verse by verse through books of the Bible. You know all that. Well, this is different. And if you're a newbie, you need to understand how different this is. These systematic studies, uh, we're not in one text, moving through a text, just kind of supporting it from other texts and making sure through the teaching and showing you that we're on track. We're not saying anything that's not biblical. Here, we're going all over the Bible. We're trying to take out and tease out what has been done over the centuries, the classic divisions of knowledge in the Bible. We need to know about a lot of things, and it starts with, as we think through logically, the origin, the nature of the Bible. We call that and have throughout the centuries bibliology. And all of these words are compound words. You know if you've been with us, they all come from the Greek language. Biblios means book. Book, that's what the word Bible means, which comes down to us through German into English. And ology, logos, is the second part of this compound word. And that is the study of, it's the root of it's the word, but the words about, the knowledge about, the corpus of information about the Bible, the systematic study of the Bible. Now, you're not going to go to one verse to learn about the Bible. You've got to go all over the Bible to see what the Bible says about itself. If God has revealed himself, which, of course, we affirm that he has, and he has spoken in propositional sentences from heaven on paper in black and white, then we need to go all over the text of the scripture to see what the Bible has to say about the Bible. What does God say about the book that we carry around that we, verse by verse, expositorily work through every weekend? Obviously, then, if we're going to talk about the Bible, which is our source of information, this objective, unchanging source of information on paper, we need to know about the God that we're talking about. So the study of God, of course, we call theology proper. Because under the banner of systematics or systematic theology or dogmatic theology, it's sometimes called and has been in reformed circles, but uh, mostly theology, we have these divisions. But when we talk about God himself, uh, we call it proper because that's the one division of the teaching, systematic teaching about God and the Bible that is about God himself. Theos, of course, uh, means Godology, the study of God proper, person and work of Christ. We call that Christology. Uh, We deal with what Christ Uh, what the Bible says Christ is, who he is, what he did, all of that. We've dealt with that here historically. Ministry of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology, uh, the creation, nature, and fall of mankind, which as we go through this, we want to group those together. Uh, But that is really two classic divisions of theology, anthropology and homartology, which deals with sin and the nature of man 
redemption and salvation. We call that soteriology. And I see people coming up for the worksheets. If you didn't get one, make sure you come up or send a scout up to get one of those worksheets. You should have one on your table or nearby. Uh, The study of the church, that's ecclesiology, which if you've read anything about what you're doing here tonight, you know that's what we'll be dealing with this semester. The study of angels and demons, and if you were with us last year, that's what we dealt with, angelology, that's called the study of end times. We call that eschatology, eschaton in Greek, the endology, the study of the end. And uh, if you have been with us for uh, this particular history of our church, Uh, We started in 2007. We did 13 weeks on eschatology. 2008, you'll see there's not a lot of rhyme and reason there was at the time, but we've kind of hit these in a different order. We dealt with theology proper in 2009. We did bibliology. In 2010, we did Christology. In 2011, we did angelology. And now we've arrived, 2012, we're doing ecclesiology. You say, why did you do them in that order? Uh, I don't want to tell you. Uh, There was a reason And every year we pray about what to do next. But we're doing ecclesiology this year. Now, the good news is, uh, well, at least the plan, let's tell you the plan, and that is to go through these. It'll take nine years, and when we're done, uh, we'll assume you've forgotten everything I said uh, 10 years ago, and we'll start over and just do them again. We may change the order. Who knows uh, if we're all still here, uh, we'll we'll do that. Now, if you don't want to wait for the recurring uh, topic, you can go on our Focal Point Ministries website, focalpointministries.org or fpr.info, and you can stream, download all of these lectures, and it's, it is a different kind of lecturing. It's, it's just teaching as clearly as we can the systematics of all of these things, and you will get, since we teach for about, I don't know, 80 minutes uh, every time, 12 to 13 sessions, what's that? That's uh, 15, 16 hours uh, of... of uh, of lecturing on each of these topics. So you can go back and you might want to start with bibliology, theology proper, and Christology, and then maybe next year we'll do pneumatology and then you can take them in order or do whatever you want. But it's out there, it's free, it's for you. And it's interesting because I have a lot of people that start coming to the church and I don't know why they get onto this, but a lot of people, you know, they'll listen to a few sermons uh, in the recent series to catch up. If they've called this their church, uh, a lot of people gravitate to these, I guess because it's a bit unique. You don't see this a lot in the local church being taught this way, Uh, but it'll keep you busy on the treadmill for a lot of hours. What's that? 280 hours so far? I don't know what it is. What would that be? No, it wouldn't be that many. 16 hours. 16 hours times five, six, five, whatever. I'm not a math major. So there you go. You can figure that out. All right. So we're into ecclesiology. So important. And I know I'm going to talk a little bit about why we should study, but let me just tell you the church is the most important organization in the world. There is nothing more important for us to understand and spend our time in as it relates to things, groups, organizations we can be involved in on planet earth. We're going to talk about that, but before we get into it, I want to pray about it. So let's pray together and then we'll start our 2012 Compass Night series. Pray with me, please. God, we thank you very much for the opportunity that we have every year and uh, even for your prompting in our lives to plan this and to, to do this. I know it's not quite a classroom situation. We're not writing papers. We're not reading textbooks necessarily. But I do pray it would be a kind of learning that supplements uh, the spiritual growth and knowledge of our church 
so that uh, the Christians here at Compass Bible Church feel like they've got a much better handle on the Word of God, that they can accurately handle or rightly divide the Word of truth. We want that, God. We need that. It's easy in our day uh, to be driven and tossed by every wind of doctrine because there's just so much conflicting doctrine out there. So help us to understand, think through these as objectively as we can and come away with a much stronger foundation in our own thinking about who you are, about the book that you've provided us, about the church that you've put us in, uh, about the end of, of, of the world, about Christ, about all these things that we've studied and will study. God, we just pray that it would be a great diet to supplement what goes on in the weekend. Now, I know we need to go verse by verse to master the book of Luke. That's the next thing coming up, or even in our case on the weekends, to be dealing with the Great Commission afresh, looking at every phrase of that. Uh, But God, we need these times to step back and to study these large topics. So I pray it would be something that you would keep our hearts uh, hungry for. Give us that appetite for it. I know Satan would love to disconnect us from this, uh, and and we need to pray. I certainly don't want our people... uh, thinking I'm making any excuses for uh, even the delivery of it. I want it to be engaging, and I want it to be interesting and exciting. But God, please, let us recognize that we need this kind of input in our lives. And because of that, let us make it a priority. Let us uh, approach it with a sense of, of prayerful anticipation that you might provide for us on Thursday nights for the rest of this year something that would do uh, great things in our own lives, and our own hearts, to establish in our minds the primacy, supremacy, the importance of the local church. Uh, and I just pray it would do great things to strengthen families and individuals, and ultimately that it would strengthen the church, that it might be the kind of place, as I think about Revelation 2 and 3, that if you were to give us a postcard, you were to grade us, you were to evaluate us right now, you'd be really pleased with what's going on here. Not only because people are trying to walk in step with your spirit and obey your word, because they have a real biblical mindset about what the church is, that they're not uh, drawn off the path to think wrongly about this thing that you've structured and organized for us in the New Testament. So God, help us through this. I do pray um, that you'd give us all the, uh, the open doors that we need. Every, every barrier, every obstacle would be removed, and this would be a great semester of learning for us here at Compass. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's dive in. Got the worksheet? I hope you do. We should... Uh, Make sure you do, because some of you are embarrassed to come up and get one. Just raise your hand if you don't have one. Is anyone without a worksheet in the back over there? We've got stacks coming around. Great. Let's talk about our study of ecclesiology here a little bit. Our study of ecclesiology. This is where we're going in the big picture here. Okay. This is, uh, this is what we'll cover, as I put there for you on your worksheet. Uh, we're going to cover what the church is which may sound so simple. Uh, I've got a way of complicating things. Uh, and, and I think you'll find, maybe not after tonight, because we're going to slide into this slowly, but maybe I would trust after next week for sure, you'd realize that's not an easy question to answer. That's a disputed and debated question, or the answers are disputed and debated. And so we want to talk about that. By the end of next week, we'd like to get to a place where we understand how the different camps might view the church and what it is, the nature of the church, the definition of the church, the distinctions of the church in the Bible. Uh, We want to look at that fairly and objectively and understand there's uh, different ways to look at this. But we're going to talk about what is the church. We're going to talk about what the church is called to do. We'll spend some time looking uh, at a lot of things as it relates to the, uh, the agenda and the focus of what Christ would have the church be all about 
Uh, and I think it's a good supplement, and we can spare ourselves the time that we might spend here at Compass Night studying ecclesiology because we're spending those four remaining weeks in the Great Commission, which is the central thing God's called us to do. So that's good that that's going on at the same time, and I hope you're taking in those sermons on the weekend on the Great Commission, the big assignment. Then we're going to talk about how the church is to be organized. Uh, and I think what you'll find in this particular section, and these are just the big umbrellas. We'll spend several weeks looking at what the church is, what the church is called to do, and then how the church is to be organized or run or administrated. We'll talk about church polity. I think what we'll find in this is that the Bible says a lot less about this than you might think. And uh, what I hope I'll do in this section is help you, whatever you know, church form you grew up in, to kind of look at this with a blank slate and try and understand, okay, what are uh, the, 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 the pillars and posts, I often say, the parameters, the definitions, the things that we can't abandon as it relates to what the Bible says the church uh, must be in terms of its organization, how it is to be run. So uh, we'll talk about that because I think the American church, like none other, uh, has really convoluted that whole question. Now, why is this so important for us today? Well, I guess you could just go through all of those and think through some of the reasons why. But let me just tell you uh, things that overlap all of these. Number one, uh, and I could list 20, but let me just list three. Number one, uh, to restore a high view of the church. Um, I was reading an Oxford Press book that came out a few years back, and the title itself will, you'll resonate with it and go, oh yeah, I hear that mentality all the time. The book was called uh, Spiritual But Not Religious. That was the name of the book by Oxford Press a few years back. How many people do we meet in increasing numbers in our day that want to say, hey, I'm, I'm spiritual, I'm into God, I believe some of that stuff, I'm just not religious. See, and what they mean by that is, uh, I, I want to believe some of this stuff that you're talking about at your church. I just don't want to go to your church. I don't want to be a part of church. I don't need organized religion. How many times have you heard that phrase, right? I'm not into that. And certainly Satan plays into that mindset by, you know, the scandals here and, the, you know, uh, the, 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 the priests abusing little boys and financial improprieties over there. That, there's a lot of reasons, if you're looking for them, why you say, I don't want anything to do with the church. Uh, so we definitely want uh, to take the church back to where it should be. I mean, it started with a simple statement, and that is the church is the most important organization on the planet. The supremacy, the primacy of the church, the importance of the church needs to be restored. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what scandals have existed. The bottom line is if God says the church is important, we better find the best one we can find, and, uh, and we, better, we better give ourselves to that church and get involved in that church. Uh, you know, and I know everybody's looking for the perfect church, but as the old adage goes, if you find the perfect church, don't join it, right? Because you'll mess it up. Uh, and, you know, your, your family's not perfect. Uh, you're not perfect. Your thought life's not perfect. Your habits aren't perfect. Your, you know, your regimens in life aren't perfect. Your church isn't going to be perfect. But let's find uh, the best one that we can find that's doing what it's supposed to do, defining itself the way it's supposed to be defined and committed to the values that God has given us, and let's get involved in it. It's not optional. Spiritual, not religious, uh, isn't going to work uh, in God's economy. And of course, that's something we talk about and I preach about often, the whole consumer mentality. Uh, that's one of the reasons the church, we've lowered the view of the church. The church now is like, uh, you know, looking for a restaurant. 
People are church shopping. They're looking for the kind of thing that is just right for their teenagers and right for their kids. And I don't want the sermons to be too long. And I want it to be, you know, it's got to have this kind of uh, whatever. You know, there's a million things people want. And when people are viewing the church, not as this great divine organization that God has set up, as imperfect as it may be implemented on, on planet Earth, but it is moving toward God's goals and agendas. And it is the organization that he says he is going to work within with a kind of not exclusivity, but a primacy that we can't ignore, then I think we've got to say, you know what, this is not about me uh, you know, trying to find a, a, a new Target or Kmart or Walmart. I, I'm, I'm, trying to, uh, I'm trying to get involved with God's program. This is, this is essential. This is critical. Um, we can't view it simply as consumers. Secondly, I think it's important for us to clarify Christ's agenda for the church. I don't think there's any other age in which there's a lot of confusion uh, as to what the church is supposed to do, what the church is all about. Uh, the church, because I think some of the... Uh, wow, how, how detailed should I be here? Uh, because the church and what it is called to do seems not to be very palatable uh, for our non-Christian friends, uh, we've decided to get involved in things that are palatable to our non-Christian friends. Uh, and because the world might take note if we did X, Y, or Z, let's get involved in that because we really want the reputation of the church in the culture to be good. And so we've watched the church, particularly since the 1960s, Uh, And into the 1970s, and it hit a fever pitch in the 1980s, we just said, listen, what do people want? What would go over well? How can we even, I mean, we even started churches by saying, let's just poll people and see what kind of church they'd want to have. Now, I understand there is some cultural connection and, and relevance you need to have to your community. But we need to, I mean, we need to really look at what we're doing at church uh, these days and say, is this, is this, I mean, does it even match what the Bible has asked us to do? Some of us, and I, I had people giving them to me, so I mean, I, I, I'm not talking out of school here. There was a lot of these ads sent for a new church that started last week called uh, Church, uh, it said Church for the Totally Awesome. Did you get that in the mail? Church for the Totally Awesome, right? And then it said, good thing you're awesome. Uh, I'm not kidding. I should have brought it. Uh, now again, because it's just down the street somewhere, I mean, I got to be careful here, but Come on, man. You really? Let's think that one through. Paul rides into Athens, planning a church. Can you see him sitting around with Barnabas going, here's what we do. We advertise that we're going to start a place. We want to win people to Christ, and it'll be for the totally awesome. You know, I said, well, we ought to have a counter campaign. We'll say a church for the totally depraved or something like that. Uh, Or church for the, I I don't know, let's just be, let's be somewhere, church for the totally average, maybe, I was thinking might work. Good thing you're average, right? Get that in your mailbox. Or good thing you're totally depraved. That would work too. Um, I I just think when we are pandering at that level, right, uh, we've, we've really missed the agenda that Christ has given us. Right? Is there something about cultural connectedness? Is there something about being somewhat, uh, you know, uh, making sure that we're heard? I get that. But let's look afresh at what the church is supposed to be. Uh, we don't want to adopt the culture we're supposed to be transforming. Right? We're not, we don't want to be uh, warming up to and providing the kinds of things, uh, really, that we're supposed to be countering. I don't want you to think you're totally awesome. Right? That's not a biblical agenda for me in your life. You understand that, right? Right? God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I don't know. That, maybe that was the first sermon that started. They just they advertised that and say, hey, you know, psych, uh, you know, 
You're not totally awesome, and we're here to tell you you're not. This is about humility, because that's what the I doubt it started that way. I don't know. But again, I don't mean just pick on that guy and that church, because um, the pastor may be here tonight for all I know. But I'm just saying there are so many examples about the confusion is about what the church is supposed to be, how it's supposed to connect with the culture, what it's supposed to accomplish. We've got to clarify the purpose of the church. And then when it comes to churches that say, well, we want to do what the Bible says, there's a lot of reinterpretation and fuzziness regarding the things that he does say. What is the Great Commission? What does it mean to to do missions or make disciples? What are the ordinances all about? How should they be approached? There's there's a lot of fuzziness about those things. I heard uh, a church say when it came to their missions program, they said, uh, what did it say? Uh, being there is what matters. You don't have to say a thing. That was, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. I memorized the line at one time. And I thought to myself, again, can you see the church, you know, sending out missionaries in the book of Acts saying, listen, go, you're going to go on the mission field. You don't have to say a thing. Just being there is all that matters. Right? This was a quote unquote evangelical church, evangelical church, which means we are about making disciples in other places. They were campaigning their missions program as you don't need to say anything. We're going to send people. You don't even say. Just being there is all that matters. When, when there's that kind of confusion and the church says, we are checking the box as to what God has asked us to do. I'm saying, you don't really understand what God is asking you to do. We need to be very clear about these things. So whether it's baptism, the Lord's Supper, missions, preaching, whatever it might be, uh, we need to clarify that. Preaching is a great example. The emergent church was a, a, a great movement to illustrate all that's wrong with the modern church, it seems. And one of the things, and they don't produce many books on preaching, but there was one church, or one book rather, that came out on uh, the, the emergent preaching, right? What a, an emergent pastor should be doing in the pulpit. And I expected the book to be short, and it was. It wasn't very big, but uh, <laughs> if you know anything about the emergent church. But I read it, and, and I, uh, I, I had a hard time Again, I just try to weigh it against what's, what the Scripture tells us to do. And basically, the idea of preaching in this book, the premise of the book is there should not be a man up on a stage with an open Bible trying to tell other people how to live their lives, right? And here's how he put it, uh, the author. He said, the congregation ought to be telling him right, how he ought to live. And the point wasn't that, you know, there should be accountability here, your pastor ought to be... No, that wasn't the point. The point is... How can one person have any, you know, really anything to say to the crowd? The crowd clearly has got more group experience. They should be teaching him. And I'm thinking to myself, if you have nothing to say, then sit down, right? I mean, you, that preaching is about having something to say in the pulpit because we are supposed to be heralds, Caruso, the Bible says, preaching the, the, with the authority of God's word to people every Sunday. Again, when preaching is redefined. That was in a book called Preaching Reimagined. Perfect title for that uh, book. When we have redefined what is the staple of the agenda of Christ, I'm thinking, well, we need to clarify all this. What is preaching supposed to be? What is mission supposed to be? What are we supposed to be doing in terms of the ordinances of the churches, of the church, a worship service, whatever it might be? Uh, we're going to try to look at as many of those as we have time for, to understand or clarify, rather, God's agenda for the church. How about this? Number three, to understand our obligation to the church. Now, again, this is hard in a culture where the consumer mentality holds sway. If we were in a, in a country where the church was being persecuted, where you thought your property would be confiscated or your head might be lopped off if you got involved and joined a church, quote-unquote, see, I think it would be easier for us to say, let's talk about our obligations to the organization. Uh, this, though, is a hard conversation to have in the 21st century uh, American church, but we need to have it. 
because there are obligations God gives us and saddles us with, and they're all good. All the commands of the Lord should not be burdensome for us, but we need to understand what is the extent to which we are to participate. What does participation mean? We talk about highly committed participants. What does that look like? What does the Bible say throughout the whole uh, New Testament as it relates to uh, how we are obligated or what duty we have as it relates to the church? Well, how much authority should the church have over my life? Where does their authority end? What about when I disagree with my church? On what kinds of disagreements do I leave my church? What does leaving look like? How do I leave if I leave? Those are the kinds of issues we need to deal with as we talk about our obligations to the church. So in what the church is, what the church is called to do, and how the church is run, we're going to try to restore a high view of the church, clarify Christ's agenda in every aspect of that, and to understand how we relate to it, our duty and obligation to the church. All right? Good on that? Let's talk about the word church. Spend most of our time doing this, or a bit of it at least. Uh, Our English word, church, right? Obviously, we all know that word, and we use it in a variety of ways. Some people say, you know, uh, we're going to paint the church. Uh, They talk about, I belong to a church. Uh, You know, we're going to do church in terms of, uh, you know, do a church service, I guess what they mean by that. Uh, they talk about the church. we talk about the church in a lot of ways, but let's let's understand at least where that word came from, and there is some reason for this. Uh, church, we get church just as a bit of a transliterated word from German. Uh, some would argue from Dutch because the Dutch word looks a lot like it. Now we got some Germans in our church, and unfortunately, this is one of those weird German words that is hard to say. But Kirke is how I say it, uh, which of course Pete will say that's not right. Ruth will say that's not right, but uh, it's all right. I'm only going to say it once. But that word, you see how to spell it on the board there, that's the German word through which we get the word church. And in Dutch, kirk is the word, it all comes into English that way. Now, of course, kirk and kirke, I said that twice now, uh, in German is used a lot like it is the way we use it and was historically. Uh, we talk about, we, we wouldn't say putting on church or doing church necessarily, but the church building, the people of the church, uh, the church at large, whatever it might be, used in a variety of ways. That German word came from the word kyriakon. Kyriakon. Um, kyriakon is a Greek adjective. It's a possessive adjective. Kyriakon. Kyriakon is a form of the word kurios. You know that word, I hope. Kurios. We say it from time to time. It is the Greek word for the Lord. Right? Kurios, the Lord. If you grew up in a high church, there was a, little, a lot of words you would say. Uh, they, they were mirrored in Latin as they were in Greek. Uh, kurios uh, is the word for Lord. Kirikon, if it's a possessive adjective then, this makes sense, means belonging to the Lord. Right? Belonging to the Lord. And the usage in Greek either oikos or doma, often we refer to either the household of God or the household of the Lord, the household that belonged to the Lord, or doma, the, 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 the building that belonged to the Lord, uh, the people that belonged to the Lord. Uh, but whatever you envision there, it was the possessive of this is the Lord's. These are the Lord's people. This is the Lord's church, right? That's what church means, uh, at least as it came to us through, if you go backwards, English, German, Greek. Now, that's not the word in the Bible, but that's how we came to get this word. Follow that? Okay. Talk about the Greek word, ekklesia. Now, that's the word we find in the Greek New Testament. If you're brand, brand new, you need to know this. (laughs) Old Testament, Hebrew, little parts of Aramaic, which is a derivation of Hebrew. Then the New Testament came in Greek, Koine Greek. Attic Greek was the classic Greek. Koine Greek was the common Greek. Um, 
it's kind of like English today. It was spoken all over the ancient world in the first century. So God chose that time and that place and that language to communicate the New Testament. So the Greek word ekklesia, that occurs in the New Testament 114 times. 114 times in the Greek New Testament, reading through it, you'll find some form of the word ekklesia, ekklesia. Now, again, we use here the uh, English Standard Version, the ESV. The ESV is trying to be as literal as possible. So usually they try to find words that communicate or translate a particular Greek word, and they try to stick with it um, as much as they can, which is sometimes impossible. But the ESV, you'll find, translates the word ekklesia, church or churches, if it's in the plural, of course, uh, 108 times. So 108 out of 114 times, if you're reading your Bible, you'll find the word church or churches. Well, that leaves us with six. In the ESV, we're working backwards. I understand that, but there's a reason for this. Four times it translates the word ecclesia, assembly. Four times it translates the word ecclesia, assembly. Two times, congregation. We're going to look at some of those. But before we get to that, let's try and take the word and understand a little bit as to where it came to be, how it came to be. It's a compound word. Like a lot of our compound words, two parts, they both have a meaning on their individual parts, the respective parts. Ekklesia, ek, like a lot of Greek words and even English words, it starts here with a preposition. Preposition gives me a relationship to reality. Is it on it? Is it in front of it? Is it behind it? Is it under it? Is it in it? Is it out of it? Ek means out, right? Out of it. Uh, You remember me preaching many times, I'm sure I bring this up because it's such a strong word in Matthew 9 when Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. He says, you know, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send forth workers into the harvest. I often make the point that ekklesia, I'm sorry, ekbalo is the Greek word there because ek and balo, and ball is an easy one, you know, abalo means to throw. That word doesn't mean just send. There's a lot of words for send, apostello, a lot of Greek words that you could use. But this word is a compound word, out throw, to throw out. There's a, I mean, if you look in a lexicon, to thrust out, push them out there, shove them out there, get them out there, get your hand on their back and push them into the harvest field. That's a strong word, compound, ek, ek, out, okay? This is not balo, but the other word, kaleo, is the noun form of the word, ecclesia, that's the root of it, kaleo. Kaleo means to call or to summons, okay? I guess I I could have done this. Out of plus the word to call or to summons, okay? Then the word, put that together, the essence of the word etymologically, linguistically, is called out. Now, you grew up in a church maybe that that was... um, and there's some, something very biblical to this, but sometimes they're called, uh, uh, you know, the, the separatist churches, the fundamentalist churches, the churches that want you to separate from the world, which, of course, in many ways we're supposed to. They often would refer to in their Sunday school lessons or in their church sermons and their pulpits, they would talk about ecclesia. Even the word church means called out. Okay, this does not take on an ethical view here. There's nothing about the word linguistically in its past that carries the idea of called out means that you're not supposed to be like the world. Now, you're not supposed to be like the world, right, in a lot of ways, but that's not what this is all about. To call out or to summons would mean this. Uh, if you're in a big group, I don't know, this is a bad example, but, uh, and I said, I need everybody up on the stage who was born in September, right? And so I called you out and I put you up here. That's not saying you're different or you're better than them in any ethical or moral way. That's just a fact that I need you over here. It's like we do with Awana. Mark gets up here and he says, okay, it's time for Awana. We're calling the kids over to Awana. We are just distinguishing groups here. This has nothing to do with the ethical or moral moral 
you know, quality. This just means it's a called out group. They're, they're, they're distinguished from the others. Okay. And I know that it's easy. You're teaching Sunday school or something. You'll say, oh, Ecclesia called out. Hey, you guys should be different. That's not the point. The point is you're, you're in a different group. Uh, it doesn't have a behavioral or ethical sense to it. That's just a clarification because you hear a lot of people use it that way. Let's talk about the Greek word outside the New Testament. Are we on the backside already? Wow, we're flying, moving so quickly. The Greek word outside the New Testament. Now, of course, you know, centuries before the New Testament, we had Greek taking hold. And actually, the reason Greek was so pervasive in the ancient world was because of Alexander the Great. And uh, Alexander the Great wanted to make sure that the entire world spoke Greek. It was called the Hellenization of the ancient world. And that was, uh, you know, that was catching on because he was you know, killing people who didn't want to get, go along with him. Uh, and, and he was the, the king of the world, basically, at, at, at that time, 3rd century B.C. Um, the language then had a history before it ever got to the New Testament, which is helpful. It's a lot going on in the language of Greek. Uh, by the time it gets to become, and it kind of morphs into Koine Greek, common Greek of the New, new, of, of the new Testament era, the 1st century, uh, we've got a lot of examples of it. What we find when we look at secular Greek, number one, if you think through or read through, um, you know, the classics that came just before the time of, of the New Testament, uh, and I could bore you with examples, but all you're basically going to find is a very benign, non-technical, general use of the word to talk about assemblies. I got plenty of examples in terms of uh, uh, the assembly of the magistrates, the political assembly, the legislative assembly. The assembly was uh, used as a group to describe a group. This is the assembly of the lawmakers. Uh, It was also used to, to actually talk about in a noun form the calling of the group together. We're calling for an assembly on Thursday at five. As a matter of fact, in school, uh, if you're a teacher, there's times when in every, all the kids go to the auditorium, it's, the, it's time for the assembly. That's how it's used throughout the Greek world prior to the New Testament. It refers to the groups. It refers to the calling together of the groups. It refers to the meetings, the assembly, the ecclesia. Okay? Most important thing that we deal with when we want to understand New Testament Greek words is looking at the Septuagint. Um, and, and the Septuagint, if you're brand new to this, uh, you need to know a couple things. Number one, it's abbreviated in books, any kind of commentary or any kind of biblical book or theology book with LXX, the Roman numerals, LXX, which stands for 70. Okay? Uh, we got to brush up on those because kids are bringing their homeworks home with the Roman numerals we have to remember. The uh, 70 has to do with the 70 scholars that translated it, but whatever, all that's boring. The point is this. The Septuagint was when the library was being built in Alexandria, and we wanted to put all the important books of the world in this library, and the most important book clearly was the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament hadn't been written yet in, in the 2nd, 3rd century B.C., but we wanted to get the great books of the world in Alexander's library, so we called together the best scholars and translators to translate the Hebrew Old Testament, which was the language in which it was originally written, and they wanted to put it into Greek. And, and they did. It's called the Septuagint. And whenever we read the Greek New Testament, right, we learn a lot about the word by looking at how it's used in the Old Testament Greek, which is the Septuagint. Okay? Here's what we find. Oh, there are 80 usages, which I put up there for you already. 80 times it shows up, at least in the canonical books, because the Septuagint has you know, all the intertestamental writings which were used for the profit of learning the history before Christ. But anyway... 80 references in the, in the 39 books that we have in our Old Testament. 
80 references. Here's what you're going to find. Examples. Let's look at these. We haven't even opened our Bibles yet tonight. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 9. We'll look at a few of these together, uh, which may be helpful. Deuteronomy 9.10. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10. I started with the beginning. The first reference to it is in Deuteronomy, I think chapter 4. But I tried to group some different nuances of the word uh, all closely so you didn't have to turn very far because I'm just babying you, coddling you on the first night of Compass Night. We don't even have a chart on the worksheet. Did you notice that? Is it even really, have we even started yet? There's no chart. I had one and I took it off because it was too simple. So I'm waiting for a more complicated concept to put on the chart, but we're not there yet. Deuteronomy 9.10. Are you with me now? The Lord gave me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, it says, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. There's the word in the Greek translation, right? A couple centuries before the New Testament. That's the word ekklesia in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, there it is. Uh, kahal, by the way, you might wonder, well, what's the Hebrew word? And more on this. There's two Hebrew. I guess we can do this. Anybody interested in this? A couple of you. Uh, kahal. There's two Hebrew words, well, there's one Hebrew word, I should say, exclusively translated, ecclesia. In other words, if you have the Hebrew Old Testament open and, and, and you've got the Septuagint open, the Greek Old Testament open, obviously the Hebrew one came first, the Greek one came later, but every time you see the word ecclesia and you check what the Hebrew says over here, it'll say kahal or some form of that, that word kahal in Hebrew. That word is used 123 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, this in the 39 books, the canonical books, and only 80 times... Ecclesia, but every time, not every time Cahal used is it, is it Ecclesia, but every time Ecclesia shows up, it was Cahal, right? Um, telephone. Um, there's another word, I should, I should get into this later, but let me just throw it out now. It's the transliterated word we get into English, synagogue, right? In Hebrew, that's another word used in a more specific sense. We'll look at that, and this starts to get into the little bit of the controversy about what the church is. But synagogue, very frequently used word, and I forget how many times. That's 200 and some odd times, I think, over 200, 123, Cahal. Uh, Ecclesia, though, never translates synagogue. It translates Cahal, which, as we'll see here, is an assembly, which in the margin you should put, or on your worksheet, whatever, Deuteronomy 4. That's the first reference to the word Ecclesia in the Septuagint, 410, which is what is being referenced here. Moses is telling about going up the mountain. And when he goes up in the mountain, historically there in chapter 4, as, he, as the story is told, he says that when he meets God, God says, call all the people together, assemble them together. And I want, I want you to talk to them. We got some things to say. That word, ecclesia, in chapter 410 is now being recited here. He says now, you called them together, and that, when he looks back on it, uh, the, that was the day I got the stones and all that, the, the, the tablets, that was the day of the assembly, okay? So we assembled everybody, Hebrews 4, then he calls it the assembly, okay? Um, now, this one is, will bother you a little bit, Deuteronomy 23, kept them all in the same book for you, but we could go and look at all 80 references to it if you wanted to, but everyone would go home in the middle of that, I'm sure, so... Look at the title in the ESV. You got an ESV in front of you? How, does that, how is that headed there? The first eight verses are headed with this. Those excluded from the assembly. Now that's important because, and I chose to use the word exclusive group because this assembly gets a little more specific. There are people, I mean, let's just read some of it. I mean, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't now that you've read the first phrase. I don't want to read it. Uh, oh, there you go. Someone read it. Verse one, no one whose testicles are crushed 
or whose male organ is cut off. I'm thinking, what? Okay. Uh, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Assembly. What's the Greek word in the Septuagint? Ecclesia in Hebrew. Kahal. That now is talking about a specific group. Now, if you happen to have your testicles crushed, <laughs> sorry, uh, you might be you might be in the group that left Egypt. Poor guy, right? But you're in the group. But now we're talking about an assembly that's going to worship the Lord in this worship that they're going to be talking about. Uh, you know, the, the, the ceremonial laws come into view. And so, hey, if your organs cut off or your testicles are crushed, you can't, you can't be part of this assembly. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Think about that one for a second, right? Uh, bastard was the old English word we used to use for it, right? Product of fornication, mm, excluded from the assembly. You mean to tell me, right, that everybody was in a marriage relationship that came out of Egypt? Not saying that. But here's something special in terms of the ceremonial law is now going to be imposed and they're going to come to the assembly of the Lord and they're going to worship, well, excluded from from this assembly, this meeting here, this worship service, this worship team. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the ecclesia of the Lord, the kahal of the Lord. No Ammonite, no Moabite may enter the ecclesia of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may, may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way. And he came out and on he goes. Even to the end, verse, chap, uh, verse 8, the word ecclesia again. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the ecclesia, uh, talking about the Edomite. Now, that uses the word about an assembly of the Lord, which you'd have to contextually get around to. Well, this is different, but it is something that begins to paint a picture of something they're going to do in relation to the worship and service of the Lord. Now, so I added this one, Deuteronomy 31. Go to the end of the book. Deuteronomy 31, 30, near the end of the book. Song of Moses is going to start in chapter 32, and it's going to go on to almost the end of chapter 32. Now, here's the thing. Same word, ecclesia, in the Septuagint, he says is verse 30. Just before chapter 32, this is 31:30. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the ecclesia of Israel, all the assembly of Israel. Now, our leader's about to die. They're not checking under your robe to see about your testicles here. Are you following me on this? Too closely, Mike. Okay, what's the point? This is not, hey, tell me about your parents. Were you the product of a, a forbidden union of some kind? Uh, married? Did your mom marry to Edom? None of that. Everybody now who's assembled is going to come and assemble. When you got down to the kinds of assemblies, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, where we talked about something more specific that gave shape to these things, usually we see the word synagogue, right? Sunogage, that word in Hebrew. Different. More on that later. But what's the point? So far, looks like a very broad general use of the word, and it is. In the Septuagint, the word ecclesia has a very broad usage. It's like our word assembly, assemble, gather, gathering, right? For this gathering, here's an exclusive list of things, all right? A defining group that can, can and cannot do. Um, for the assembly to have the last speech of our great prophet and leader Moses, let's get everybody assembled together. Same word. It's a non-technical use of the word. It's a very general use of the word. The 80 times it shows up, we've only referenced three, actually four if you count Deuteronomy 4.10. But there is some of what we learn about how the word ecclesia is translated. So when the translation was made, we see a broad use of it. Now we come into the New Testament, finally. The Greek word in the New Testament, letter D. When we go to the New Testament, which was originally written in Greek, of course, when they employed the words 
ecclesia. Okay? We do see some, very few, secular references. In other words, the, use, the word is used as it would have been in secular Greek to mean just a general assembly. And you could even argue that's the way kahal or in the Septuagint, ecclesia was used in the Old Testament many times, just as a general assembly. Obviously, the subject is Israel and various groups within Israel, but it's used in a very non-technical way. It's just talking about the assembly. I'll give you some examples. Let's go to Acts 19, Acts chapter 19. Here's an example, which sounds a lot like the uh, headlines of the news today and yesterday. Acts chapter 19. If you know your Bible, you know we're turning to a bad chapter. What's the heading above verse 21? What does it say in the ESV? A riot. You've seen some of those. Are those vivid images now in your mind? Libya, Cairo, you see that, the riotous mob. Look at verse 32. Verse 32. Now some cried out one thing and some another. For the ecclesia was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had even come together. A lot of people, when there's a riot, whether it's the, I don't know, you know, there's a lot of things. The Rodney King riots, whether it's what's going on in in Cairo. I guarantee you right now there are people uh, there in front of the embassy in Cairo who don't know why they're there, right? They just know there's tires being burned and rocks being thrown, and let's go do that. That's more fun than listening to the radio or whatever. Um, That is happening in Ephesus, and the word used here is assembly. Can you see now why sometimes when you're translating the Bible, you can't just pick one word and stick with that when you see the word ecclesia, the translator, oh, there's another use of ecclesia, let's just put church down. Read it that way. Some cried out one thing, and some another for the church was in confusion, and most of them didn't even know why they they had come together. Church wasn't there. Not the way you use the word church, not the way the word church is used in most of the New Testament, but that's the word here. That's you see, is a secular use of the word ecclesia. The group that was called together because they wanted a riot, they were in confusion. Uh, Look down further here, verses 38 and 39. Interesting, we see almost all of the secular usages by Luke right here in Acts 19. Uh, verse 38, if there, therefore Demetrius, this is the count, this is the clerk speaking. Uh, if Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek, verse 39, anything further, it shall be settled in the regular ecclesia. That looks a lot like the secular use in non-biblical Greek and not in the Septuagint. The courts are open. The proconsuls, you want to go to court, the assemblies are there for you. That's why the assemblies are there, for you to deal with these matters. Here is a secular reference to the word, a secular use of the word ecclesia in the mouth. Is it not the clerk here uh, who's speaking? Yeah, verse 35, when the town clerk quieted the crowd. So we got a non-Christian, a secular city worker, using the word ecclesia. Luke records it here in Acts 19, and it's used like it's often used outside the New Testament. One more in the same chapter, believe it or not. Verse 41. And when he had said these things, that's the town clerk, right? Still speaking. He dismissed the assembly. You got three different uses of the word ecclesia. That's the word right there, ecclesia, in this one chapter. And it's almost all the non-technical usages of the word. You got, I mean, define it. You got the riotous crowd, verse 32. Verse 39, you got the courts, ecclesia. And in verse 41, you got the whole crowd there, which included everybody, right? Those that were rioting, those who weren't, those who were in charge of things, those who were trying to quiet people down, the silversmiths, the, the marketplace people, Paul, his guys, 
right? Dismiss the ecclesia. Everyone had come into the, the square. That's the secular use, almost all of the secular uses of, of the word in the New Testament. Okay? Now, there are two more references. And I'm giving you all of them. This is an exhaustive, exhaustive list. Five references here. Uh, may not be all the times it's not translated church. I'll get back to that another time, I hope, I think. But two times depicting Old Testament scenes. You're near it, so let's turn there. Acts 7.38. Acts 7.38. Stephen is preaching. He's about to be killed, executed, martyred. He's recalling the history of Israel in the Old Testament, and here's what he says. Which, by the way, when you start looking for the word ecclesia in the Old Testament Septuagint, it is really clustered a lot around that situation where God calls them out of Egypt around Mount Sinai at Horeb, and he calls the assembly together. Time to talk, gets his group together, and a lot of historical looks back at that. So here's Stephen recalling all that, verse 38. And this one, speaking here contextually of Moses, who was in the ecclesia in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and with our fathers he received living oracles to give to us. There's the reference, verse 38. Congregation is the word ecclesia. This is all of them, right? Did I not say five? How many did I say assembly? Oh, I'm thinking, yeah, there's one more, assembly, right? Four assemblies, two congregations. Is that what I said? Okay, here's the other one, Hebrews 2, 12. Now, when, just to follow up on what I just said, when, what we just read, when Stephen is quoting that, he is quoting the historical scene of the assembly, the meeting that God calls and uses the word that is so frequently clustered around that experience in the Septuagint. Ecclesia, 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 ecclesia. He uses the word, ESV translators translate it the congregation. He doesn't call them the church, right? Even though that's the same word, because contextually it seems to argue for something different. It's not the way the word is used in the rest of the New Testament. All right, now, you know when you're reading prose and it turns into poetry that something's happening. And in the New Testament, what that usually means is, uh, rarely, and sometimes it does mean there's a song but, or a poem, but usually it's a quotation of the Old Testament. And that's what you see here, is it not? Um, verse 12, verse 11, he who sanctifies those who are sanctified all over the world. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, now this is a quotation of Psalm 22, verse 22, Psalm 22, 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the ecclesia. I will sing your praise. Now, you remember the group that was called to worship there in, and we were starting the clean and unclean laws in Deuteronomy? That was the assembly within you know, Israel, which sometimes when they pulled them together, they called them the assembly. Well, here we're talking about the worship there in the tabernacle before Solomon built the temple and the call to the assembly to worship. He quotes Psalm 22. And if you read the Septuagint, which is what most of the apostles and the New Testament writers were reading, if you read Psalm 22, there is what you find in the Septuagint, the word ecclesia. So he quotes the verbiage of the Old Testament Greek translation and calls it the assembly. Okay? Now, with the exception of one more reference, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, another day at the end of the book of Hebrews, which is a sermon to the Hebrews, uh, we've exhausted now the use of the word ecclesia where it is not translated church or churches. 114 times, six times, it's not translated church or churches. Is that what I said? Right? And how many do we need then? 108, that leaves how many? Six, right? Is that right? Six, thank you. Look at my wife, help me. Um, and, and we've covered five of them here. And there's one more, I'll deal with that one later. 
every other time. And again, we're trusting some translators right now. The word ecclesia is translated church or churches. Let's now think those through. Talk about those a little bit. The Greek word in the New Testament. Is that where we're at? We're still there. Number three. Thank you. This is what I'm going to call the specific or the technical use of the word. It is why the translators choose in most all translations to translate this word now a different word. The word we get from German, kirke. There's the third time I've said it now. Uh, or in Dutch, kirk. And they now are using the word that we would come to think of when we think of what we're doing here and who we are as Christians gathering together as a part of a church in, under a team of leaders. That is now the rest of the usages in the New Testament. But it's broken down in three ways. Okay? Now, I'm kind of reluctant to use this old phrase because it's so misused, but we'll spend a little time cleaning it up. The first uh, use of the word ecclesia, as you watch it in a technical sense, it's divided into three categories, mostly into two. The first one is this, the universal church. Okay? Once you write that down and you're used to that, though the Bible doesn't use the word universal church, clearly the word church or ecclesia is used, and it's not referring to what this is here. It's referring to something bigger, something universal, something across not only geography, but from the beginning of the church to the end of the church, the entire thing through time and geography. That's what we call and have come to get used to calling the universal church. Let's look at just one example, and there are a few we could look at about Oh, I'm going to guess now, 13, maybe, 14, where we're referring to something broad, okay? Ephesians 1.22, Ephesians chapter 1.22, which, by the way, most of these, and there's not many of them, are found in Paul's writings, and they're during Paul's prison epistles. In his prison epistles is where we see him talking about and using the word ecclesia and not meaning a specific church, but talking about all the churches, not only across geography, but across time. We'll talk about how far that time extends next week, but let's look at this, verse 22. You gave me time to get there, thank you. Oh, let's get some context, since it's such good context. 20, he worked, uh, he's worked in Christ, and he's raised him from the dead. He's seated him at the right hand above the heaven, in the heavenly places. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, sounds like last weekend's sermon, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Is he talking about the church in Ephesus? No, that's much bigger than that which is his body, verse 23, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is something much bigger than what's going on when he starts the thing and he says to the saints, verse 1, in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ. We're not just talking about you anymore. <laughs> We're painting a cosmic picture, a big picture of Christ being the head over all the church. And that is one of the few references we have to what we call the universal church. Compare that now in Acts 8, 1. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it. It's simple. Uh, and it's ubiquitous. It's all over the place. It's about 80% plus of the references of the word ecclesia. It says simply this, Paul approved of his execution. We just read Stephen preaching his last sermon, and Paul stood there holding their coats as they went and executed him. And it said, and it rose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. That church, right, headed up by that pastor, Peter, it was now ramping up into heavy execution. The mob had killed Stephen, and it says that church was now being persecuted. And they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, and on, on it goes. That is how most of the usages of ecclesia is used. Specific churches in a specific location. We'll talk a lot more about that. Geographical settings, meeting the definition of the church, having leaders that are duly appointed and duly uh, um, 
qualified, appropriately qualified, duly appointed. One more. This one's worth looking at. Acts 9. Yes, I would have turned, should have turned you to Acts 8 because it would be right next door. Sorry. Acts, Acts 9. We'll call it a segment of the University of California. No, that's not right. A segment of the Universal Church, which didn't all fit, so I'm abbreviating it. That's hard to do in this crowd because you're thinking now of the UC system. But what I mean by UC is the Universal Church in distinction to the local church. Now, this is really rare, okay? Acts 9.31. It says, so the church, singular or plural? Not a trick question. Acts 9.31. So the church, that singular, plural is churches, right? This in Greek, in, in Greek, ecclesia is singular. So the church throughout all Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, spread that wrong, dyslexic, sorry, in all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Say, this is a good statement about the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. This only happens a couple times where the church is used as a singular referring to a region of churches, okay? Now, if you're in Acts 9, I want you to turn to Acts 16. That's one of the rare usages of the word ecclesia. Usually, if we're going to state that thing, we're going to state it this way in the plural. Acts 16, look at verse 5. Same kind of commentary, different point in time, but it says this, Acts 16.5. Do you see it? So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Okay? That, if we're going to talk about a region of churches, is usually how it's communicated. The churches, plural. Galatians, the women are about to start studying verse by verse through Galatians in our women's Bible study. That book starts this way in verse 2, to the churches, plural, of Galatia. Galatia is not a city. Galatia is a region. So if we're going to say it, I guess he could have said to the church at Galatia, but it would be confusing because there was a lot of churches in Galatia. Which one are you talking about? So really, the third use of the technical use of the word ecclesia is really not a new thing. It is simply a way to discuss a limited part of the universal church, a segment of the universal church. So really, there's only two. There's the universal church, which means all of those who are defined by whatever, however we define church here, all the people of God who are defined as the church across time, across geography, or the majority of the way that the word church is used, and that is a specific local church. Now, for years, I used to use the word local church because as I studied, that's how I came to use the word in contradistinction to universal church. I say universal church and local church. And then I realized that some people heard that so much out of my mouth, they thought that that meant that your church had to be like in your neighborhood. That's not what I mean, right? Like you need to go to a local church. I kept saying that to people and people said, well, I don't know. I drive 10 miles to come here. I guess I should find one within a mile of my house, a local church. It's not what I mean. Okay. This feels so bad sometimes when I realize for years, people have misunderstood what I have been saying. What I mean by local church is we're not talking about the entire thing. We're talking about what I like to call an outpost. You hear me talk about that sometimes? An outpost of the church, right? That's what we are. We are a church, but we're, we're, we're an outpost of the church. All right. Oh, I put those down just for fun. Acts 16, 5 and Galatians 1, 2, but you've already taken note of that, I assume. Okay, now, because the Bible doesn't talk much about the universal church, in terms of that's not how the word is normally used, let's tonight try to do our best to just deal with this and deal with it in a way where we, I mean, we'll have to come back to it in some themes throughout our study, but we're really going to be talking about the specific outposts of the church, like Compass Bible Church, 
when we study ecclesiology. But for tonight, let's just try and get a broad brush right here and think through that. And I want to show you that the times that analogies show up about the church, often it is relating to the universal church. So let's talk about the primary illustrations or metaphors in the New Testament as it relates to the universal church. Number one, which is huge in terms of significance, is the body of Christ. Now, can that be used locally? Absolutely. When Paul talked to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, he told them, you know, they're a body and every part does its work. He wasn't talking across the board of the universal church. He was talking about the Corinthian church. Everybody's got a part to play. But we see the body of Christ often used, especially in the prison epistles, to talk about the entire thing. And that may be helpful because now we can apply this and see kind of the global view of what God is doing in the church. More implications on that next week. Colossians 1. If you're not there yet, please turn there and let's look at this and then draw a couple of uh, quick implications of that. The body of Christ. What are we talking about? We say that so much, maybe we don't think of its implications. What does that mean? Here's the picture that was supposed to be in our minds whenever we use the phrase body of Christ. Verse 16, let's start there. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, talking here about the incarnate Christ, right? Pre-incarnate when he did this. But whether they are visible or invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist or hold together. He is the head of the body. Okay, now that's how he wants us to view this. Christ is like the head on your physical body. And the body here is described as the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the prototokos, the one who is the, the, the prototype of the dead uh, being resurrected, that in him everything might be, pre, that, that he might be preeminent in everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. Head is preeminent. I hope you consider your head preeminent on your body. Just want to make sure, I, I mean, I can lose a finger, I don't care to, but I can't lose my head. It's essential. Okay, so that's the picture that every real church is headed by the source, the authority, the reason, the preeminence is Christ. Okay, so you can look at it this way. And for fun, sometimes on a plane, it's fun to do this. But, you know, people say, well, what do you do? I say, I work for a multinational corporation. That's what I say. Wow, really? Yeah. But what, what role do you play? Well, you know, I just deal with one section of it. But I know, I know the CEO, right? He runs this thing. There are, there are offices in every country of the world. It's amazing. And, and, you know, what am I doing? I'm, you know, starting a funny, weird conversation in which they'll be very deflated. Like this guy once, I was playing golf, which I don't do very often or very well. The guy was, uh, was trying to be an actor in, uh, in, in L.A., you know, Hollywood. And so I did, I did one of these things, which I shouldn't do. But uh, he was going on and on. Yeah, I want to get this gig and this TV show and I've auditioned for that. And I said, oh, I, I've been on... I've been on television, I said, for, uh, what did I say, 12 years. Um, I, yeah. You know, he's talking about shows, and they come in. For 12 years, yeah, uh, every week, been on television. He lit up. Wow, really? <laughs> on television? Yeah, yeah. It's been running now. My show's been running for 12 years. Really? Amazing. Yeah. Well, of course, I, it was a way to hook him into a conversation, which after I told him we're on a local cable station, I'm a preacher, and uh, it's on, like, channel 122 or whatever. Um, <laughs> He had very, you know, very little interest. He wanted to, you know, obviously he thought I was somebody. But uh, anyway, I do that. <laughs> I don't know where we got on that. I do that with this whole thing because in reality, we look at it this way. Every church is an outpost of something in which Christ himself, who now sits in heaven, he's gone away to receive a kingdom, as it's put there in the parable we studied on the weekend, right? He is the, the president, the CEO, the king, the head, the leader 
of every office, every outpost, every you know, corporate office around the world for this thing. It ties us together. And I shouldn't say organization because really the body analogy is one of organism, is it not? Right? Something very, very, very much animated and, and, and living to this organism that we're a part of, the, the body of Christ, this multinational, international organization called the church. Um, and in that regard, think about that. If you work for, and a lot of you work for companies where there's outposts everywhere, right? You know, you work for, I don't know, whatever. Let's go easy. Starbucks, um, Allstate, I don't know, whatever your thing is. You can go to other countries, you can go to other states, and you meet people that work for the same company you do. You never met them, you don't know, but you, you know you got the same, you know, SOPs, you got the same operating procedures in, in every place, and so there, there's this instant camaraderie there. See, every true, true church in that regard feels that sense of connection to every other church, whether it's in Cairo, we do have an office in Cairo, you know, and we have one that we know intimately over there. Uh, whether it's in, in, in uh, Jordan, Amman, Jordan, wherever it is, in China, in Southeast Asia, when we get together with those, there's this connection. We are working for the same person, right? We are headed and led by the same leader. There's something about, I remember, I will never forget this. I was in Papua New Guinea, uh, and I was on a missions trip there, and I was meeting with pastor. I was preaching there to people hardly dressed, and, and uh, I always remember that too, which I shouldn't, but it was weird. I mean, never preached to uh, people with less clothes than that day. But I, I remember you fly on a big plane, then you fly on a smaller plane, then you fly on a smaller plane, and you go to a place that doesn't even have a, a, a paved runway. I mean, we're landing on this grass strip. We get there. I preach. I spend time dealing with you know, issues and, and all of that. And then I remember sitting up on this hut that was on stilts, and I was dealing with one of the, uh, uh, one of the pastors of, of the church there. You know, and it had been going for a while. And I'll never forget, as he said, you know, he, obviously he knew where I was. I'd been there for a couple of days and I'd preached. And, and uh, he starts asking me questions about the church, running the church, doctrinal issues. He starts laying these questions out. And it was so amazing. I remember coming back and telling my wife, that was the neatest part of this trip. When he sat there and, and we were discussing the church and doctrine and the application of theology in the church, I felt like I was, like this afternoon, as Elliot and I were talking theology in the hallway. That's what it felt like. It was so weird. And then I came to my senses because there was a spider about the size of my hand that was crawling toward me as I'm talking about, I don't know, you know, election or predestination or something. And here comes this spider, and it knocked me back into reality that I'm nowhere near Orange County right now, right? <laughs> It was really, really weird. Um, but that is the kind of thing that we think of and experience if ever you, you know, are in another weird part of the country or the world where you run into true churches and you hang out with real churches and you get involved with Christians who are part of real churches. That is something very weird and unique. And by the way, it'll feel that way when you get to the New Jerusalem and you sit there with redeemed people and you talk to people that lived in the church in the 800s. Right? When you sit around and talk to people from the 5th century who followed Christ and met like we do, oh, they didn't have smartphones and laptops, right? But they sat there and did what we're doing right now. And people from the 1500s, right? And if the world goes on, people from, you know, the 2700, I don't know how long it'll be. I don't think it'll be that long. But that is going to be the experience of the church reunited under the head when we see him face to face and our faith is realized. True churches 
connect in a way. Not like modern ecumenicalism. You understand the difference. I keep saying the word true churches. Have you noticed that? Because there's a big difference between true churches and people that just want to say Jesus is on my team. We'll talk about the synchronon of the church. We'll talk about what makes a real church. And obviously, if we understand the gospel, we know not every church that calls themselves a church is a true church. Secondly, the bride of Christ. By the way, there is probably, I don't know, depending on how you break them down, there's probably about 20 analogies or metaphors used in the New Testament for the church. Uh, We're just going to look at three of them, think through three of them. The bride of Christ. Turn with me to Ephesians 5 once you jot that down and think through some of the implications of this primary New Testament illustration. The bride of Christ. I mean, have we not all used that analogy, illustration used, and again, popularized in Paul's prison epistles? You know this passage, I'm, I'm sure. But notice the conflation of the two primary analogies here. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Do you see what we're doing right now? We're back to that analogy of head and body, head and body. By the way, before we even read the rest of this, go down to verse 32. Everything he's about to say is really not about marriage. Oh, I know it, it, there's a great marriage thing here, but he says this mystery is profound, but I'm, but, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I mean, the picture now he's about to paint as he moves from head and body analogy is husband and wife, right? The Christ and his bride. And then he gets this new analogy going. Now the church submits to Christ, so wives also should, also should submit, to their, uh, submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with water, of water with the word, that he might present to the church himself, so he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that, he, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, look at this, but nourishes and cherishes it. That made it into the common book of prayer, which made it into almost every wedding ceremony in the Western world for hundreds of years now, right? Love, honor, and cherish, whatever you want to call it. Those words came from this analogy, which were really about Christ and the church, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body, right? Now we're back to conflating the image of body, head, wife, husband. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. Two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. But what I'm saying, and what I'm saying, it refers to Christ and the church. However, it's a good lesson on marriage too. Let each one of you love your wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the bride of Christ is another primary biblical New Testament metaphor of the church. Now think that one through. It's one thing to think of our connectedness, that every real church is connected to the head. This text, just to use the words from the common book of prayer stolen from this passage, every real church, according to the Bible, is nourished and cherished right, actively right now by Christ himself. Now, not everybody that calls themselves a church is a real church, but every real church, Christ takes an interest in it. The picture we looked at Sunday was he walks among the lampstands. He tends to it. He trims the wicks. He makes sure the oil's in it. That's the caring for the lampstands that we see in Revelation 1. But in this text, it's like a husband making sure he cares for, loves, cherishes, nourishes, provides for, protects his wife. That's the picture of every true church around the world. There are churches right now, we went to one when we were in uh, suburban Boston,
Boston. Uh, we went to several churches, but one we went to on a Sunday morning, and we sat there listening to this guy, uh, and, and he admitted right out of the gate, I'm not the pastor here. We're hoping to call a pastor. And uh, he might have said that for me because clearly he knew we were visiting. Actually, we upped their attendance with my five-person family by 20%, it seemed. Very small church. You get the point. We're sitting there, uh, and, and he's preaching, and I'm thinking, this guy isn't any good. But he said at the beginning, I'm not really a pastor, right, uh, because we don't have a pastor. And he preached the word there, right? And I'm telling you, he wasn't the greatest homiletician, but he preached the word. He preached some things to us. I mean, it wouldn't be what you would expect from the staff members here at Compass, but I'm telling you what, I thought to myself, here's a church without a pastor, right? True church. I mean, I really believe it based on everything I heard and saw and all that we experienced and all that I read about this little church in the middle of suburban Boston. But I thought to myself as I was studying this, Christ was caring for that church, right? He, he nourished it. He made sure that that Sunday those people got something from the word and that worship took place. And though the guy in the back couldn't work the soundboard, you know what I'm saying? Couldn't get the tape working. For, it, was, you know, it was one of those typical experiences of the tiny little church. And, and they didn't even have a real pastor there. But I thought to myself, that place was working. And there was one little testimony they did about stuff they were doing in VBS that week. And I thought, wow, God is doing stuff here. And I thought to myself, why, as I sat there studying this this week, because Christ is the lover of that church, right? He's not just the head of the organization. He sees that church as his bride, because that outpost is part of the body of Christ. Great, I, I mean, great, great picture in my mind. He cares for his church like a husband for a bride. The building of God. Another primary analogy, we're in Ephesians. I picked one that was close, and it's frequently repeated. But look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Oh, by the way, the bride of Christ, were you at the men's conference this last weekend? I preached on the jealousy of God. I wrote that in my notes. I didn't see it till just now. But that picture of the bride of Christ should get us back to that sermon I preached on Friday night, which was sin, right? In God's book, constitutes idolatry. Idolatry really is nothing more than spiritual flirting or spiritual adultery, because he loves and nourishes us as a church. When our church gets off track and the individuals start to seek after things that aren't the priorities of Christ, he sees that like a love relationship, a romantic relationship that's strained now by a straying partner, right? I mean, there's another implication of that, that picture of the husband and wife. Building, though. Let's talk about building. Another primary analogy of the universal church. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, part of the family. But now he starts, again, conflating this a bit. It's, it's, it's closely related, but now he talks about the building itself. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now I'm picturing a slab here, a foundation. Christ himself being the cornerstone of that, in whom the whole structure, now we're a structure, a building, the household, that wasn't just the family members. Now we're talking about the structure has a foundation and a cornerstone. The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now that starts to crisscross. Are we talking universal church or local church? But I can prove elsewhere we're dealing with universal and sometimes we're dealing with local. When he says to the Corinthians, for instance, when he's arguing uh, in 1 Corinthians 3 about being careful that we don't mess with the church, he says, don't you know that you are the dwelling place of God, right? 
And if anybody destroys you, right, God will destroy him. He was concerned about the church at Corinth. This is a local analogy, just like body is sometimes local, localized as an analogy or a metaphor. And it's also universal, I think, in many places. Because the, found, the church, not just this generation, every generation is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And in that regard, I often think this, and I often preach this too, if you hear me preach about evangelism, as I'll do this weekend, every time we win someone to Christ, we're putting another brick in this building, this big edifice that Christ is building. And when the last brick gets in place, we're done, see? And that's what Second Peter 3 is all about. His patience is waiting for people to come to repentance. And when every person fits into their spot in this thing called the church, we're done. The church age is over, and we get on to the next phase. That's a good picture. All true churches... Are, are, are together trying to reach the world. See, who will it be? Will it be a church in the Middle East? Will it be a church in Asia? Will it be a church in China? Will it be a church in America that gets the last brick in this big building that God is building? Not only that, all the churches are reliant on the apostles and prophets. Every church is reliant on the cornerstone, uh, Christ himself. Christ is trying to be at home in his church. Man, time's going fast. Um, I wanted to say more, but I'll end with this. Logical observations. And this is just real, 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 real quick. Universal Church, talked about it, big picture, good to see all that, but all of it ultimately finds its, its application in the local church, which is the rest of our whole discussion of ecclesiology for the most part. Know this about the Universal Church, it never meets. Think about that. Universal Church never meets. Are we commanded to meet? Absolutely. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Got to meet. That church never meets. Uh, that church doesn't practice the ordinances. Why? Because according to 1 Corinthians, you've got to assemble together to take the Lord's Supper. The Universal Church never assembles together. Most of the members of the Universal Church are dead, right? They're not here. The Universal Church has no leadership teams. Who is the pastor of the Universal Church? Where's the, where's the, the team that leads the Universal Church? There isn't one, right? Why? You can't have it. By, by the nature of the Universal Church, there's no such thing. Every church is, is commanded to take the ordinances. Every church is commanded to have pastors. Uh, the Universal Church never takes an offering, which is one of the reasons people want to go to the Universal Church, right? There's no offerings there. Are we commanded to take and, and, and receive offerings? Uh, you know, yeah, absolutely. That's part of the command of, of the Scripture for the church. That never happens. The Universal Church isn't organized. There's no structure to it. There's, there's, no, there's no programming to it. I mean, there may be a thing here or there that you say, well, look at what the church is doing. There is no universal shape that the Bible keeps commanding the church to be. This is all facetious, but you see what I'm saying. You cannot participate in the universal church only by being a part of a local church. Now, you can say, if I'm a Christian, I'm a part of the universal church. You are, see? But here was the big thing, particularly when I worked for a few years on, on campus uh, at the University of Arizona. I was doing college ministry. I heard all the time when I would invite them to come and be a part of what we were doing, which was a part of the local church in town. They said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm a part of the universal church, right? I don't want to do it. And here's my comeback was always, you know, the universal church is so disobedient to Christ. What a terrible church to be a part of, right? Well, it's not a terrible, I'm being facetious. What's the point? You cannot live as an obedient Christian, right? And just say, I'm a part of the universal church. The whole point is that, and that's why the stress, 114 times, Ecclesia comes up, 80% of the time we're talking about how the local church in that location, this location, or any location should function, operate, what they should do, how they should be structured, who should lead it. All of that comes back to this. Don't let anybody try to tell you whether it's I'm spiritual but not religious, and if you want me to be a part of a church, I am a part of the church, I'm a part of the universal church, that does not fly, it doesn't square. You cannot be an obedient Christian and only default to the fact that you're a part of the universal church. You need to be a part. I'm, sp I'm singing to the choir right now, right? Because you're here. 
but you need to be a part, part of the local church. And I don't mean one within a mile or two of your house. I just mean one within reasonable driving distance that you can participate in. You need to be a part of a specific geographic church. Let's pray. God, time goes so fast here on Thursday nights, but thanks for this team. Keep them engaged. Keep them coming. Let all the barriers that might keep them from being here each Thursday night be overcome so that they can be actively participating every Thursday night here at Compass Night this fall. In Jesus' name, amen.